Welcome to the Leadership Development Group's Health Ecosystem Leadership Podcast Series. We're excited to have you join us. My name is Tracy Duberman. I'm the founder and CEO of the Leadership Development Group. We are a global coaching and leadership development consultancy with an exclusive focus in the health industry. Over the years, we've had the distinct pleasure of working with some of the brightest talent in our industry, leaders who are clearly making a difference in the work they do to provide high quality care for those in need while designing approaches to enhance health and wellness. The purpose of this podcast series is to showcase how leadership is the essential ingredient to address the ever-growing issues and challenges facing the U.S. healthcare industry. As we know through our work, the great majority of these challenges are too complex and wide-ranging for any one sector to solve independently. This is where a health ecosystem leadership approach pays more than significant dividends. Solutions which emphasize how the various sectors of the health industry operate interdependently are the only ones with the potential to deliver on critical imperatives like affordability, access, and outcomes. During this podcast series, we will introduce you to some of the best and brightest health ecosystem leaders who will share practical examples of how they have successfully demonstrated a collaborative mindset, as well as the critical behaviors that lead to positive outcomes for their organizations, their patients, and the communities they serve. Welcome to today's Helm podcast. I am excited to introduce you to Dr. Craig Samet, who is currently the President and Chief Executive Officer of Blue Cross Blue Shield of Minnesota and its parent company, Stella. In this role, he is responsible for overseeing the strategy and operations of the state's first and largest health plan. Dr. Samet joined Blue Cross in 2018 from Anthem, where he served as Executive Vice President and President of their Diversified Business Group. There, he built partnerships within and outside of Anthem to provide new sources of growth for the enterprise and deepened Anthem's relationships and impact across the healthcare ecosystem. Concurrently, he led and executed a nationwide clinical vision and strategy as Anthem's chief clinical officer. Dr. Samet's numerous accomplishments at Anthem include advancing the company's portfolio of provider partnerships and payment innovation models, leading quality improvements in patient outcomes, and increasing the delivery of value-based care. An internal medicine physician by training, he's worked across various multiple sectors within the healthcare industry. His career includes a number of senior executive positions, including partner and global provider practice leader at Oliver Wyman, president and CEO of Healthcare Partners, and CEO of Dean Health Systems, one of the largest integrated health systems in the Midwest. For nearly 25 years, Dr. Salmon has been a nationally recognized expert and thought leader on healthcare delivery and policy. His record of collaborating across the healthcare system to deliver higher quality care at a lower cost led to him being named as one of the 50 most influential physician executives and leaders by Modern Healthcare in 2018. Dr. Samet currently serves on multiple boards, including the National Committee for Quality Assurance, the National Institute for Healthcare Management Foundation, Minnesota Business Partnerships, the Minnesota Council of Health Plans, and the Twin City Habitat for Humanity. In addition, he's a former commissioner of the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, which is an independent agency that advises Congress on Medicare payment policy. Dr. Salmon holds an undergraduate degree from Tufts University, a medical degree from Columbia University, and an MBA from the Wharton School of Business. He completed a medical residency in internal medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston and is a fellow of the American College of Physicians. Well, Dr. Samet, uh, I've known you for quite a while, but it never ceases to amaze me to read your bio because it is outstanding in terms of the experiences that you've had. What I can add for our listeners that don't know you personally is that in addition to being so accomplished as an executive among many different sectors within the industry, you are also a really, really nice man. So I'm, <laughs> I'm thrilled to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much, Tracy. I'm, I'm honored to be with you. It's, we have known each other for a very long time, and it feels like we've been talking about some of these same things for, uh, for a couple decades, perhaps. So um, it's always fun to catch up with you. Well, thank you so much, and thanks for the time today, especially given um, your, your busy schedule. I, I sincerely appreciate it. So, so Craig, um, you have worked in a variety of different sectors, as I just mentioned, within the industry. 
when you arrived at Blue Cross Blue Shield in Minnesota, you stated this big audacious goal of transforming healthcare in the state by driving value-based payment models and eliminating healthcare disparities among community members. So I'd love to hear your progress to date. Yeah, happy to, it's a good place to start because I actually think that's probably fundamentally uh, a core focus of our transformation here in Minnesota. You know, the bottom line is, I think the one of the biggest challenges we struggle with in the industry right now is still affordability. You get what you pay for, and right now we're paying too much for healthcare. On a national basis, the average family spends about a third of their household income on healthcare, and by 2030, it's projected that um, it could be as high as half of, of household income, and the reality is it's unsustainable. So. So from my point of view, we need to be more forceful in really looking at not the volume of healthcare, but the value of healthcare. More than 60% more than of the providers in Minnesota that we work with have some type of value-based arrangement with us. But what's interesting is that only about 2% of those providers have upside-downside or risk-based arrangements. So so in essence, we're, we're not paying for value and therefore we're not getting value. So the, the value-based transformation is we're, we'd like to make a more forceful shift. You know, I want Blue Cross Blue Shield of Minnesota to lead the nation in making a more substantive pivot to population health. So we're, we're in discussions with nearly every major provider in Minnesota um, in discussions about really not if we should transition to value, because it, it seems like there's a lot of support for that notion, but how? Mm. Um, when I was on MedPAC, I think one of the things that we really admired about the CMMI work is that is this notion of meeting the providers where they are. Um, so not everyone is ready for significant upside downside. Not everyone has the tools and capabilities to help make the pivot to value um we want to we want to start where each provider is ready but we can't stay still we and we can't go backwards either we need to go forward and we need to help providers move along um both as a sort of an, an inspiration as well as a support in making that value transformation so that's the that's the value-based payment model focus you know, ideally, and I, I mean, I, when I travel around the country and, and I ask providers, why are they not making a more substantive shift to value? I, I think what I typically hear is that the payers are, are unwilling. Well, if the payers are unwilling, shame on the payers, because the reality is, is that a better care at a lower cost can coexist. And one of the real instigators of that transformation needs to be more aggressive and more willing shift to value. Mm, really interesting perspective. You've been on both sides as provider, health system executive, and now health plan, in essence, executive. Um, I'm wondering, when you have the conversations with the 2% with the of, of the physician population that is actually accepting risk, what is it that differentiates them from the, the other 98% that aren't willing to take that step forward? Well, I, I think it's actually quite a few things. Um, you know, it, it obviously starts with leadership. So, you know, I think some of the organizations that are a bit more progressive are those leaders that are um, are willing to take a leap, that are a bit, you know, uh, a bit braver. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, we one of the one of the great frustrations that I have with our industry is we're very good at admiring our problems. <laughs> we're not really very good at fixing them. And I think some of the organizations that are taking risks are the ones that sort of are, are effective in holding a mirror up to themselves and realizing that, you know, the low margins that come with volume-based healthcare are not sustainable. It leads to a fragmented and not very innovative system. And if I'm going to stop complaining about my problems and I'm going to do something about it, then what sort of uh, liberates me as a provider organization is for me to have the greater flexibility that comes from value-based payment. Um, 
I think the other thing beyond just the bravery of leadership from my point of view is are really just having the tools and capabilities. Um, you know, you, you've heard me say before that you, you can't make a risk transformation without a clinical transformation. Um, that, you know, if, if, you, if you take risk without sort of the reinvention of your care delivery model, then it's exactly that. You're actually uh, taking population health risk without the skills to be able to manage that population. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think the organizations that seem to be more successful and willing to take risk are the ones that really uh, focus on, you know, cascading incentives down to the individual physicians, having the right uh, data and technology systems, doing care model redesign, um, and that they are ready and actually successful at population health, even if it starts with a subset of their business like Medicare Advantage. They're the organizations that seem to have piloted a, 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 a good successful start. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like to summarize that it's a combination of having this, this innovative leadership approach um, coupled with capabilities, tools, and processes, both clinical and non-clinical, to support that work. Yeah, I think that that's, I think that that's fair. Mm -hmm. And then in your initial question, you also asked about um, eliminating health disparities. I want to comment on that a little bit. Please do. You know, I, we use this expression that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And I honestly just don't feel that our industry follows that motto. You know all the data that I've seen that the, the reality is that probably only about 20% of healthcare really happens in the traditional care delivery model or system and that 80% happens outside of the doctor's office. Minnesota is really a very good example of that. We're on average one of the healthiest states in the U.S. But when you look under the covers at the deviations in health, we have some of the worst health disparities. In our state, African American and American Indian babies die in the first year at twice the rate of white babies in the state. And there are some striking lifespan differences in, in the city of St. Paul, just within a three mile stretch, there's a 13 year difference in lifespan. And so our focus, because, you know, the reality is, is we do well as an organization when people are well, not when people are sick, is to focus on the non-clinical drivers of poor health. So the social determinants, the food insecurity, homelessness, loneliness, transportation barriers and you know from my point of view and I, we may get into this a little bit later our strategic focus is really on health plan reinvention blue cross can't be the plan it's always been um, if we're going to transform health we shouldn't just be on the sidelines we should be in the game we should be addressing not just the clinical barriers to health but the social barriers to health yes. you know maybe we need to get into the food business or in the transportation business or in the care delivery business or, or more broadly in the, you know, the consumer behavior change business because it will be only then that we can truly move upstream and address health. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the things that, that we've been concentrating on in Minnesota now. Yeah, it's very encouraging to hear, Craig, and I can tell you that the other podcast interviews that we've done with health system executives and pharmaceutical executives as well share your perspective. It leads into the next question, which I, I'm very interested in hearing the response. So what, what, one of the interesting challenges that, that we're, we're seeing in the industry is this issue of collaboration. And we recognize that it has to be done across the health industry. And we have this paradox of mission um, versus margin. So to impact health and wellness within a community, leaders from nonprofit and for-profit sectors need to find common ground. So how have you been successful in doing so? You know, what's, what, what I struggle with when we hear, you know, do you, is it mission over margin? Is it margin over mission? Is it's not mutually exclusive. You, you can have both. I, I think good health can be profitable. 
as long as the profitable businesses are driving a beneficial outcome to the customer. Um, you know, high quality care, at least in the world that I came on from, especially at Harvard Community Health Plan, at Dean, at Healthcare Partners, high quality care costs less than poor quality care. And, and frankly, high quality care can be more profitable than lower quality care. Um, I, I think the challenge we've got is we, we live in a world where there seem to be many industry stakeholders that are profiting from sickness versus profiting from wellness. And I think if we can make the pivot where the consumer wins, the payers win, the providers win, when frankly people are well, not when people are sick, is when mission and margin kind of come together and merge. Mm -hmm. um, you know, frankly, from my point of view, if, if an organization comes up with a new approach to keep society healthy, if a company develops a cure for end-stage renal disease uh, or cancer or develops a new innovation in fitness, they should be able to profit off of that innovation um, as long as net-net it leads to a lower total cost of care and better health. Yes. Um, you know, the best way that we've done this in both my current role and in prior roles is to look to partner and invest in organizations that generate what I'd call a wellness ROI. Mm. Um, you know, our, our strategic plan here is all about service, improved health, and affordability. We want to put our dollars in the things that matter to the consumers. Um, some of those investment opportunities are with nonprofits and some are with for-profits, but what they have in common is they generate a net gain to the consumer because that's what we care most about. So, So I think these things very much can coexist and we shouldn't sort of set them against one another, we should find ways to actually get them to work in lockstep. Okay, you've previously mentioned that you believe the interconnectedness of information is the most valuable and also the most underutilized resource to help drive the transformation of healthcare. How do you approach the sharing of information to align payers and providers? You know, so I, I would first say that before jumping to data, the word you used a lot is alignment. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think you can unify data and information until, frankly, you just align the relationship more fundamentally between providers and payers and patients. You know, I, I think what's, what's broken in the industry is that each of the key stakeholders work in silos or work in opposition or work transactionally. And, and you know, one of my greatest frustrations is we tend to put the patient or the member in the middle. We need to start building trusting relationships that, you know, even if we do share information, we would share information for good, not for sort of a, a proprietary or for personalized uh, agendas. Um, so more specifically for data, you know, we use the expression that where there's a will, there's a way. And from my point of view, in regards to data sharing, that there's a way <laughs> that mm -hmm. the technology exists to share. I think we have a will problem um, <laughs> that we hoard the information and people believe information is power. And I think we should view clinical information, healthcare information as a common good. Um, that when we pool it, it drives better care at a lower cost. We don't treat information like a common good. We, we keep it separate. Um, so I, I think we need to start by achieving alignment between payer and provider. I think if we agree that our vision is to deliver better care at a lower cost, um, and that we would both win equally if that's the outcome, then data integration and data unification becomes sort of a critical strategy to achieve that goal. Um, and I, I think we just gotta start putting data together. I, I've, I'm a believer that 
payers probably have the most complete data set, but it's not timely. Uh, doctors have the most acute data, but it's not complete. And patients have probably the most relevant data, but it's not actionable. So what if we lived in a world where we all realized that we only had parts of the equation, but not the whole equation, and that we put it all together? The, the real-time example I think that we're now living with, we just announced a partnership with North Memorial Health where we're going to co-create what we believe the future of care delivery will look like. We're putting all of our data in the provider's hands, and in many respects, they're putting their data in our hands because we believe that unifying the data gives us the full depth and breadth of the patient information so that we can truly put them at the center and we can make healthcare more affordable. I think if everyone viewed the power of unifying information that way, we would very much accelerate the industry's transformation. Yeah, there's no doubt about it, Craig. You know, I, I, I've been thinking philosophically about the whole movement of volume to value, and it seems to me that without integrating data, community data, you can't really impact population health in a relevant way. That's the reason why we're moving from volume to value. I mean, that's, you know, you, you get what you pay for, right? <laughs> it, it's, it's a compensation philosophy. So I, I think the work that you're doing with North Memorial Health is very innovative, and it will be interesting to see what the care pathways are that come out of that review of data. Yeah, I also just think that people get freaked out when you ask for all data. And I just, I don't think you need all data. You know, I think if you can just get the pieces of data, whether it's the parts of claims data or the parts of clinical data or the parts of consumer data that can help us um, improve population health specifically or predict which patients are more at risk for, for immediate illness or complications, that's probably what's most crucial and um, there's, there's less of a risk of misuse of, I think, those data elements. So I, I think we, we get overly distracted by what other people want to use the data for. Um, and I think we need to assume good intent uh, if we're going to make these types of trusted partnerships work. Uh, absolutely. And I can tell you that not everybody thinks this way. In fact, the vast majority of industry executives, you know, what, what you've said uh, prior, prior to this answer, which is they, they hoard data because data is power from their perspective. But if you can come together on a common purpose, um, it's certainly easier to build, build that trust and hence the transparency of data points. Completely agree. Yeah. So you've had, obviously, a very unique perspective. You're one of um, a few people that I know um, in the health industry that have worked on, on the provider and payer side at such a high level um, at the C-suite. So along with that work, as well as your healthcare consulting experience, you really do have a unique vantage point from which to address the shift from volume to value. What advice can you give leaders that are managing the shift from an industry focused on providing sick care to one that's focused on promoting health and wellness? You know, so the expression that seems to be very commonly used this day today is uh, disruptive innovation. Um, and my worry and sort of my advice to folks that are following in, in uh, in us older people's footsteps <laughs> who want to also fix healthcare, um, is that is that we can't view disruption as something that happens to us. I think we have to view disruption as something that we should lead. Mm. Um, you know, I I worry I worry less, frankly, about you know. Minnesota has had some recent changes in laws that allow the public companies uh, to enter into the market somewhat more unencumbered, and there's been some protection in Minnesota. And I, you know what? I don't worry about them. I don't really worry about United or Humana or Aetna or Anthem. I worry about the 
um, Amazons or the Targets or the Walmarts or the Apples or the Googles because um, they look at us incumbents and they think that uh, we aren't fixing our own industry. Mm -hmm. So our focus at Blue Cross is frankly all about reinvention. Um, we recognize that to get value, to get wellness, to make healthcare more affordable, we need to be the disruptor. And we need to drive the reinvention. Um, I also just, we, we're really good, I mentioned earlier, we're really good at admiring our problems. We also kind of look to the past to give us the answers to solve the problems for the future, and we can't do that anymore. Um, you know, we have to look at alternative models that challenge ourselves to be better and to be more distinct. I think the other thing is we we have, there's merger mania, as you know, um, uh, either vertical or horizontal. And I, I think the merger mania stems from this notion that we believe that bigger, getting bigger will make us better. Mm -hmm. And frankly, I think getting better is going to make us better. So we can't just presume that you know, we're going to be a huge hospital system, so that'll make us better, or, you know, we'll be a huge health plan, or we'll be a health plan that gets into the pharmacy business. You know what? Yeah, that's going to make us bigger, but it's going to be a distraction. And will the consumer really benefit? There hasn't been a lot of evidence that these acquisitions lead to that. Mm -hmm. And then the final piece of advice that I would give is I think we need to start thinking like other industries. Um, you know, I, ever since I was in business school and I heard case studies about the best companies in the world and not once did I hear a case study about a healthcare company, <laughs> I've had this philosophy that I should steal shamelessly from every other industries and bring those things into healthcare. What if we acted like the Costco of healthcare? Everyone loves Costco. You can get what you want there. High quality products. It's easy to use and it's affordable. Um, or, or what if we were the Netflix of healthcare? And what I mean by that Netflix of healthcare is that, you know, Netflix was willing to self-cannibalize themselves. They were in the DVD business, and then they went into the streaming business, and then they realized, well, wait, maybe we should get into the content business. You know, and I think that's one of the drivers for, frankly, why we got into care delivery. If the current system isn't going to change itself, well, maybe we need to be the change we want to see and to get into those other lines of business so that we're more influential in driving the change. So those are some of the pieces that I would advise. Let's disrupt. Let's look forward and not back. And let's look at other industries and do some of that stuff ourselves right here in healthcare. I, I think that's a, a very, very good call to action, given today's uh, chaotic environment. I, you know, I wonder if you were talking to your younger self at Dean, <laughs> um, and you were faced with the challenges of writing uh, the ship uh, toward profitability, given the movement from volume to value, what advice would you give to yourself? Oh, wow. That's a loaded question. <laughs> um, you know, I think we did a lot of things right. Yeah. Uh, I think if I were to whisper in my earlier self's ear, younger self's ear, uh, I would have tried harder to extend that model to other markets. Um, I think what we're trying to accomplish here in Minnesota is I think we would love to create uh, Dean-like models. Um, we want, we want integrated models. You know, I, I, I think the freedom of the virtually integrated system that we had at Dean where in essence, the payer, the hospital and the doctor were somewhat working in virtual, in virtual lockstep yeah. with aligned incentives, with the focus on the customer. That's the exact type of model that we want everywhere yeah. in the U S I would imagine, and not in a restrictive way. You know, I actually think that you can you can transform population health without vertical integration. And we weren't even vertically integrated. But what I would do is I would truly embrace this notion of accountability. I, I since you asked, I'll share. 
Um, I, I have some issues with a lot of organizations around the country that call themselves accountable care organizations. Mm -hmm. um, just because you take a little bit of uh, up, um, upside gain, it doesn't make you an ACO. From my point of view, unless you're in the top quintile of quality outcomes and in the lowest quintile of cost, you don't get to count yourself as an ACO. The whole notion of an ACO was to prove that the highest possible quality and the lowest possible care could coexist, which in essence was what we were trying to accomplish at Dean, which is what I hope the future ACOs will really want to try to accomplish. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I'm sorry I threw you a, a curveball there, but you answered beautifully and I think great advice to your younger self. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so you did mention briefly this um, venture with North Memorial Health. And in particular, um, just last month, uh, you were quoted as, um, uh, well, you, were, you gave an interview where you talked about co-leading primary and specialty care clinics with the goal of improving care access and cost. My question for you, and I think this will be an interesting story for our listeners, is how did that joint venture come about? And in particular, how did you manage to create uh, this win-win solution with North Memorial Health? You know, I may have alluded to this a little earlier. It starts with a common vision. And one of the things that has just been such a pleasant surprise to me, especially here in Minnesota, is I think there's much more of a common vision uh, in the community than people think, especially between hospitals and payers. Um, it starts there. It starts with a common vision. I think what brought North and, I, and our organization together is we were both passionate about two things, delivering on our mission and reinventing healthcare. And we started there and we said, oh wow, we, we think very much the same about what we want from the future of healthcare in Minnesota. Where we disagreed was how to get there. Um, and so I actually think that's where the joint venture really came about. So we we started with a common vision, and in fact, it's, it, it's felt like we even have similar joint visions with other systems in Minnesota beyond North. But once the vision is in common, we then sought to find a common ground and agreed on a path for what we described as a win-win-win. Mm -hmm. The most important win being the consumer, the customer, um, but also truly an equal shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder partnership between payer and provider where we're not fighting or transacting against one another, but we're putting the patient at the center, holding them up as our biggest priority, and then finding a way to jointly create an alternative future that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, I think the other important thing about this joint venture is this win-win-win was about value creation that comes from wellness, not sickness. Mm -hmm. This notion that if we believe that, um, that a strategy toward wellness is both better for the customer and more profitable, then there should be plenty of room for innovation between our organizations. Mm -hmm. um, so the strategy with North is all about the consumer. It's, um, you know, North and Blue Cross are going to be in the problem-solving business. We we want to address the complexity of healthcare. We want to take the patient out of the bureaucratic middle. We want to reduce the patient's out-of-pocket expenses, and we want to make healthcare more convenient. Bring the care to the patient, so to speak, as opposed to demanding the patient to come to the care. You know, and, and it's been remarkable that, you know, there's been such a commonality of interest between our organizations. It always starts with aligning on the vision for sure, and then the ability to align all of the diverse stakeholders toward that vision. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that you've hit some bumps and obstacles along the way. Would you be able to share how you've been able to overcome any, any type of challenges in this this venture and how you've been able to move forward based upon those challenges. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's, 
you know, the, the, the first trick that I would say is always go back to the customer rather than go back to ourselves. Mm -hmm. I think that's where you often find the answers. Um, we've either been paternalistic in the industry or we've just been self-serving. And if we run into a bump and we say, okay, well, with the, if the customer were in the room and what's, what's ironic is that, you know, most of the customers between North and us, you know, are, are us. You know, a lot of a lot of our own associates are insured by Blue Cross and get care by North or other systems. So we we have a natural focus group. But if we go back to what the customer wants, it usually uh, helps us answer the question. The other is it's just frankly about compromise. You know, the the reality is if we're going to fix healthcare, it's going to require collective sacrifice. Mm -hmm. There is no answer for delivering better care at a lower cost that, that gets everyone, you know, where everyone gets to keep exactly what they've always had before. Um, I, I think the reality is we, we're going to need to make collective sacrifices. And when we've hit bumps in the road, we've had to say, okay, you know what, these two things are more important to us. And those two things are more important to you. All four are important to the customer. That's the outcome we should strive for. Excellent. Excellent. Um, I, I want to coin what you just said. Repeat that to me again in terms of the uh, the compromise. Well, it's, you know, at the end of the day, it's, we need collective sacrifice. Collective uh, sacrifice, in, that's it. In the organ, in the industry. Um, it's, there's, we've tried to pack 30 pounds of sand in a 10 pound bag in our, in the healthcare industry for way too long. Um, we have to scoop out some sand. Yeah. Um, that's just the only way we're going to be able to make it work. I love it. I love it. So you manage boundaries and obstacles through collective sacrifice. That's fantastic. I'm, I'm coining that. I'll get All right, great, You can have the trademark, but, and I'll use it. All right. <laughs> so you, you are, you're a bold visionary, and you um, recently mentioned uh, that primary care is becoming old school. So what do you see as the future of primary care and also specialization? Well, I mean, I sort of alluded to earlier, first of all, this notion of bigger being better. I, I think there are too many providers that still believe that building more capacity is the best way to win. I don't think that's where the industry is going. I think a world where um, the primary care system is a feeder system to advance a more heads and bed strategy um, is on a fast path to irrelevancy. I don't think that's where the future is going. Now, where I am a believer in primary care is a primary care strategy that is not beholden to a heads and bed strategy that is more independent, mm. that really thinks about um, care as an ambulatory strategy and not so much as a facility dependent strategy, those are the, going to be the primary care models that win. Um, that aside, you know, there's a growing trend of this, the use of what I'd call the term upstreamist. Mm. Um, and I think we think of primary care historically as just primary care physicians, when the reality is that we should define primary care more broadly as, as everything upstream. So primary care, yes, could be what we do with primary care physicians traditionally, but could also be fitness strategies or nutrition strategies or social determinants or other things that if done correctly through the lens of wellness um, avoids downstream services. Mm -hmm. um, I, I do think there's going to be a new generation of specialists. Um, I've already mentioned, you know, upstreamists. How about residentialists, <laughs> you know, care at home, or a social interventionalist? Uh, I know we're, I'm purposefully kind of using traditional specialist names, but think of these things, you know, if people intervened from a social perspective, um, or a complexivist. Um, someone who helps families or patients navigate the complexity of the healthcare industry. I think in a world of population health, we're going to see, um, we're going to see a new generation of clinicians. I hope that we do. Um, 
we do a great job with our traditional specialists, but um, but what if we did a better job upstream so that the burden of the traditionalists was lower? I think that's fascinating. It's a great model. I, I hope we see that come to fruition in our lifetimes. I, I can attest as a patient of healthcare services that um, having the ability to access these new roles, <laughs> complexivists and, and specialists in different areas would be, uh, would be a, a breath of fresh air. I agree. I agree completely. And, you know, it's, um, it's another area where I think health plans can potentially play a role. It's, again, our strategy is all about reinvention. People forget that the hospitalist movement was created by health plans. Mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't a hospital-driven strategy or a physician-driven strategy. Health plans said, well, we may be seeing inconsistency of quality in the hospital setting just because for certain disease states, PCPs didn't necessarily have the frequency of seeing that specific diagnosis on a, on a regular enough basis to assure, you know, top expertise. So that's very much how, in many respects, the hospitalist um, specialty was created. You know, what if we do play a role in the creation of some of these new disciplines? Mm -hmm. Excellent. So you, you've mentioned that in order for organizations to transform, there needs to be a balance between risk transformation and clinical transformation. Health systems both have to pay for and create resources for population health, but they also need to be free to transform their clinical practice. How can leaders accelerate innovation in their organizations? What policies do you think need to be pushed forward? Well, I think the first thing we talked a little bit about it is that we can't, um, we can't do risk transformation without clinical transformation. What I wouldn't advocate systems to do is to just take more population health risk without reinventing the way they work inside. Um, risk without innovation um, isn't transformative to value. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, risk in the absence of innovation leads to losses. So, so I think we have to go hand in hand between risk transformation and clinical transformation. The other advice that I would give is systems don't have to boil the ocean. Um, they, they should start somewhere. Um, they, should, they should pick no regret moves. Start with where the waste lies. So if you're going to take population health risk, start with site of service. Um, where you, can you provide services that were in the hospital now in an ASC or were in an ASC and now in the physician's office or, you know, working at the top of one's license, um, whether it's staffing from that perspective or location, you know, where's the right place to deliver a unit of care that delivers equally high quality outcomes at the lowest cost. Um, addressing the rising cost of drugs, no regret move. Doesn't, um, doesn't affect the livelihood of the system or the practice. Mm -hmm. The avoidance of ERs and hospitalizations, um, the determinations of the patients that are at the greatest risk with either offering of home monitoring or, or more frequent check-ins to avoid complications. You know, these are things that have very material impacts on um, both quality of life quality outcomes and total cost of care that, you know, you don't have to do everything. You just kind of start with something. Mm -hmm. You know, we're at a really interesting time. Um, we're approaching 2020 with the presidential election uh, uh, in, in November. Um, we've seen uh, everything from Medicare for all uh, to um, uh, ab abolishing Obamacare, to increasing uh, the exchanges, to going to private insurance, more private insurance. I, I'm interested. Obviously, you're you know you're you're with one of the largest payers. But what what is your perspective um, on healthcare reform? It's going to be a big item uh, for, for people as they go into the voting booth in 2020, um, what, what would you suggest is the right fix? You know, I, 
I'm going to use the last term. I think healthcare needs to be fixed. Um, reform starts to then bleed into kind of the legislative or regulatory solutions. But I think we all have to recognize the reason why healthcare reform is so highly debated uh, is because there's a feeling that healthcare is broken, that you know the rising costs of healthcare are unsustainable. Um, we, we, we have access problems because there, there aren't enough resources to go around. And so, you know, we need to start thinking of something different. That's why value-based payment is so important. That's why social determinants are so important. We shouldn't be resisting disruption. We should be embracing disruption. Um, and so the fix needs to come. I, I would say the fix I'd like to see is reinvention of our industry from the inside out. Mm. Uh, I, I think that we've always had the opportunity to improve the way healthcare works. The incumbents have always had that opportunity. We know healthcare. We know our patients. We know, we know what good utilization looks like. We know what's safe and effective and what's not. We just haven't done a very good job of putting that to work. So I'm, I'm more inclined to push for internal reforms um, and that we address our problems and fix them uh, as opposed to waiting for someone from the outside to reform us because we're not doing a very good job of addressing our own challenges. Mm. Give me, if you, if you don't mind, just brainstorm with me. What do you think are the top three things that get in the way of doing the right thing? So you mentioned that we, we know what works. So why aren't we doing it? Well, I think it's a lot of the things we've already hit on. I'd say the first three are incentives. Um, I think we're not, we're not rewarded for, I think we're not rewarded for better care at a lower cost. We're just not. Um, I, I, I think we're rewarded for doing more and not doing better. And so I would say the first are those. Um, I think another thing is, is it could be at the intersection of data and technology or is transparency. Yes. Um, I don't think we are very good at shopping for healthcare. I think we have to get better at shopping for healthcare. I, um, can you imagine a world where you you went to the Amazon website and Amazon says to you, um, we're not going to tell you anything about the quality of this product that you're about to buy, and we're not also going to tell you how much it costs, <laughs> but you, you go ahead and buy it, and then we'll tell you how good this was and how much it costs. That's... That's how healthcare works. Yeah, it's it's, <laughs> so, it's crazy. So we don't, uh, you know, we don't shop because the information is incomplete or just not there. And I think if 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 we fixed incentives and we actually had good information so that we could be good shoppers of healthcare, um, those would be the things that I probably would start with. And then I think, frankly, the third thing is one I've already mentioned. We need to adopt some of the non-healthcare industry's best practices. You know, there, there are a lot of innovators out there um, in, in, in the world of industry that we should just follow some of their differentiated business practices and put them into healthcare because I actually think that would be highly transformative for us. Yeah, and you've been doing that in every single organization that you've led throughout your career. Yeah, I've tried. I mean, there's more. There's always more to be done. Sure. Um, but I, I, I think that stealing shamelessly is not is not something we've been shy to do with my teams in the past, and we're going to keep doing it. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot to be learned from your uh, your journey, which leads me to our concluding question, and I'm going to get you out of here within 60 minutes. So, what do you want your legacy to be as a leader in our industry? You know, I've been, uh, Tracy, you probably could have equally been the one to call me this, but one of my other colleagues from my past called me about a month ago and asked me whether I was 
as irreverent as always. <laughs> and at first I was taken aback and I was shocked. I'm like, oh, she's, my friend is insulting me. And then I realized it probably was a compliment. Um, yeah. You know, I, I'm not going to stop my irreverence and my impatience. I, I think my, I, I'd like my legacy to be, you know, I want to be able to look back and say that, um, you know, I used my pressure on the healthcare industry for good. I want our incumbents to wake up and recognize that transformation is in our hands if we embrace it. I, I attend conferences and I hear the same stories that I've heard for 20 years about the need for us to embrace change and disrupt and take on value-based payment. And we're just not moving fast enough. We have to get on with it. Um, uh, we need to stand up and disrupt ourselves. So that's, that's what I want my legacy to be. I want to get as many more people that are currently in the industry to disrupt ourselves rather than to be disrupted from the outside in. I love it. I love it. And our next competency model that we developed for the health uh, leaders of the next generation, the first two competencies will be irreverent and impatient. Excellent. Uh, <laughs> those I would want to trademark. So just so you know. <laughs> there you go. Um, Craig, thank you so very much for your time this afternoon, but more importantly for the contributions that you've made across the industry. And I know that there are there's more to come. So I'm excited to stay connected and I'm really excited for our listeners to have the opportunity to get to know you personally. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. For those of you interested in learning more about leadership, please visit us at TLD Group's website, join us for more interviews with health ecosystem leaders during our podcast series, and of course, stay tuned for the release of our book entitled From Competition to Collaboration, How Leaders Cultivate Cross-Sector Partnerships to Deliver Value and Transform Health. Thank you for joining us.